Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, incarnate in the flesh, to live among us, to walk among us, to bring the word to us straight from heaven, Lord, and then to go to the cross, to die as the sacrifice for our sin, to be resurrected to life, to ascend to the right hand of the Father, to sit down and to rule, Lord, all authority is in the hands of Jesus over over heaven and on earth. And we thank you, Lord God, that you are moving this entire history of which we are a part to your goal, your telos. And Lord, that goal is Jesus Christ. And so we thank you, Lord, for all that you are doing in our microcosm stories, in our day-to-day. Nothing, Lord, is simply mundane, but everything has sacred value. And we thank you, Lord God, for uh, guiding us, illuminating us, leading us along the path of righteousness for your sake. And now as we open your word again, Lord, we pray your attendance by your spirit. We pray that you would mightily move, uh, remind us of things, challenge us toward godliness. Lord, do your pleasure here. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. In the towns and villages of Israel, news was spreading very rapidly. Breaking news. The Philistines have just trounced us in battle, and early reports suggest that the king himself and his three sons have all been killed. It's time to get out of town. In only a matter of hours, the Philistines will advance into our village, into our town. We need to flee right now. Well, indeed, in this moment of national crisis, the people of Israel abandoned their cities and fled, according to 1 Samuel 31, verse 7. The moment was very chaotic People were panicking, they were running in all directions, trying to get out. One of the women had a five-year-old child in her arms, and she ran with her precious cargo held tightly to her chest, trying to escape. But somehow, the little child managed to wriggle out and fall out of her arms, landing on the hard ground, his ankles snapping with the force of the impact. He cried out, and there was more panic, more chaos. That part of the story is described in 2 Samuel 4.4, which says that the woman who was the child's nurse, took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, she fell, he fell, and became lame. But in that moment, the woman managed to pick up the injured child and keep on jetting out of town, running, and they managed to escape. They ended up at a village called Lodabar, which in English means no thing or nothing. 
So quite literally, they fled over to this nothing town. And as for the little boy, as Eugene Peterson describes it, his broken bones knit badly. They knit badly. He was never again able to walk well. He grew up in obscurity, in this nothing town. Lame. Oh, and one more thing to tell you, uh, this little boy with the broken feet, now in nothing town, he had royal blood flowing in his veins. He happened to be the grandson of King Saul and the son of the royal prince, Jonathan, both of whom, again, had been killed on that same fateful day when everybody had had to flee their towns. Over the next years of his life, this little boy with the badly mended ankles in Lodabar began to hear his family tell stories about a person named David. And the gist of those stories was that David really had been the cause of all their trouble. Again, to borrow from Eugene Peterson, the stories that the little boy heard growing up were stories that described David as being responsible for all the ills that the family had endured and experienced. It it was because of David, says Peterson, that the little boy's father and grandfather had been killed by the Philistines. If it hadn't been for David, There would have been no accident and no lifelong crippling disability. It was David's fault that they were now living in faceless and miserable obscurity in Lodabar. This little boy grew up hearing repeated stories of the villain, David. The boy had driven home to him that David was a very bad guy. And then one day, there was a knock at the door. Government officials had come knocking, and they were looking for the little boy, who by this time now was an adult. Come with us, they said. The king has summoned you to appear before him in Jerusalem. The king has summoned me? You mean David? David the king? The young man had to sit down at this point and catch his breath. It was all too much to process. David has summoned me? The one who caused a world of trouble for me and my family? He wants to see me? David? The subject of all those villain stories in my childhood, I'm I'm, I'm to go before him, David? The one who is now king and who more than likely, because he's freshly minted as king, is undertaking a purge of the family who used to rule, which is my family. I'm to appear before David, the the only reason that David would summon me to Jerusalem is to kill me. 
After all, I'm the grandson of Saul. The young man with the lame feet living in his obscure, nothing town now found himself fearing in this moment just as much as he'd feared the Philistines on that day many years ago when he had fled with his nurse with his broken ankles. Well now, friends, let's leave this fearful young man in Lodabar for a moment. Leave him there, and now let's jet over together to Jerusalem, and let's be flies on the wall in King David's court. Let's listen in. In recent days, King David has just finished, very recently finished, building up his new kingdom, solidifying his kingdom, making it strong. It's taken years of blood, sweat, and tears under God to make this happen, but here he is. Now he is firmly and securely in power in Israel, and it's at this moment that David recalls that about 20 or 25 years ago, he had made a covenant with the father of our young man in Lodabar. David had made a covenant with his best friend, the late Jonathan. And remembering that covenant, David now asks, he's got the covenant in his mind, 2 Samuel 9.1, he asks, is there anyone still left of the house of who? The house of Saul. Now watch this. We have to remember, friends, that Saul had been the one pursuing David for all of those years obsessively and psychotically Saul had been trying to murder David. Saul had been David's sworn enemy. David says here in effect, is there anyone still left of the house of my enemy that I may do what? that I may show him chesed, is the word, kindness, translated in English, chesed, for Jonathan's sake. David wants to show chesed kindness. He wants to demonstrate and relate loving kindness to any remaining member of his enemy's household, and he wants to do it for Jonathan's sake. Again, 20 or 25 years before this, David had made that covenant with his friend Jonathan. David and Jonathan had covenanted together in 1 Samuel 20, verse 15. They had agreed that when the time came, when the time came when all of David's enemies were cut off, when the time came when David would subdue, as the new Adam, when he would subdue all nations surrounding Israel, then in that moment in history, David would not cut off his chesed to Jonathan's offspring. And now that time had come in 2 Samuel 8, which happens right before 
2 Samuel 9, in 2 Samuel 8, we have the description of David's enemies being subdued. And now David remembers that covenant that he had made with Jonathan. He wants to show chesed to somebody in the bloodline of Jonathan, of Saul. He, he wants to show kindness to them, if, if there's anyone still alive in the house of Saul. David will be faithful to the covenant that he made with his friend. Well, let's go to verse 2. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul, so not a blood member of the house of Saul, just a servant within the house, whose name was what? Ziba. And they called this Ziba to David. And the king said to him, I love this, are you Ziba? So please identify yourself, right? (laughs) And Ziba said, I am your servant. Now notice this, the beginning of the verse calls Ziba a servant of who? Of Saul. But at the end of the verse, Ziba is trying to ingratiate himself to David by saying, I am your servant, David. Verse 3, and the king said, tell me, Ziba, is there someone of the house of Saul that I may show the chesed of God to him. Interesting. In verse 1, David wanted to show chesed in general toward any remaining member of Saul's lineage. And now in verse 3, David wants to show, notice, God's chesed toward that person. And, and sure enough, this, this makes a lot of sense. See, David was a person who had experienced the chesed of God, right? The kindness of God, the the loyal faithfulness of God, the, the faithful generosity of God. And David had experienced that over many very difficult years. David knew what it was like to have divine chesed, divine loyal kindness showered upon him. And just two chapters ago, God had promised David, it's very interesting, in 2 Samuel 7, verses 15 and 16, God had promised David that his chesed would not depart from David's royal house. God's chesed, his loving kindness, his steadfast love, his loyal love, would be upon David's kingdom for how long? permanently. So David knew something of God's chesed, kindness. David had experienced it, and now David wants to share, (laughs) as you do if you've experienced the kindness of God, you want to share that kindness with any surviving member of his enemy, Saul's house. Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the chesed, the kindness of God to him? And Ziba answers, Listen to his answer. Oh, there is a, still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. Who's he talking about? That sounds like our young man back in Lodabar, doesn't it? Notice a couple of things here, though. First of all, notice that so far in this text, and I would add so far in this sermon, on purpose, the young man in Lodabar 
has not been named. Up to this point, he's just sort of a faceless person from a town whose name means nothing. He's a nobody from a nothing town with lame feet. And then secondly, I think it's worth posing the question here, why does Ziba emphasize this young man's disability here? Ziba says that this son of Jonathan is crippled in his feet. And we wonder, is David saying to David, oh, oh yeah, there's still, still a, a son of Jonathan who, who really poses no threat to you, David, uh, because after all, he, he has trouble walking. Is that what Ziba is doing here? Or is Ziba playing a game here, saying, in effect, oh, my king, how sad has the house of Saul become now? Uh, you and I are right, king, to disparage the house of Saul because look what's left of it. Just a single son of Jonathan who has crippled feet. Well, one thing we can mention here about Ziba is that later on in the story, he turns out to be a bit of a snake. And so here, um, he, he makes this rather odd comment about crippled feet. Now, here's the thing. David knew something about being perceived as the bottom of the barrel in a family. David knew something about that. When the prophet Samuel had come to Bethlehem to anoint one of the sons of Jesse as king, David wasn't even considered as a candidate at first. You remember that story? Samuel first inspected the seven eldest sons of Jesse. David was just simply an afterthought. David was the youngest son. He was the lowliest son. He was the son who brought lunch kits to his older brothers. David was out tending sheep. And so I think, because of his own experience, David, in our story, he had a tender spot for this young man with the crippled feet from nothing town. Let's go on to verse 4. The king said to him, where is he? Where is this person? Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. So now David has uh, the GPS coordinates for the young man at Lodabar. And then we get verse 5, friends. Focus on verse 5 in your Bible if you have it. Verse 5 is right where we left our young man in Lodabar. The officials had come knocking on his door telling him that David, of all people, wanted to see him. Verse 5 reads, then, then King David, whoops, there it is, then King David sent, okay, so this is where the officials were sent to the young man's door in Lodabar. The officials then brought this rather shaken-up young man from Lodabar to the king's court in Jerusalem. And the young man is terrified. This is the villain David, legendary villain David, who he's about to, to come before. The, the person he's about to see is the one whose name had been so notoriously negative around the supper table for all those years growing up. Verse 6, watch the beauty here. 
finally we get the name of the young man. His name is Mephibosheth. Or at least that's his nickname. His birth name, according to 1 Chronicles 8.34, was Merib Baal. Merib Baal. So somewhere along the line, he went from Merib Baal, his birth name, to Mephibosheth, which seems to be more of a nickname that he was called that ended up sticking. It's hard to discern uh, the precise meaning of this name Mephibosheth, but we know it has at least something to do with shame, with shame. It means something like this, one who scatters shame or even seething shame. It could be very well that other people attached this name Mephibosheth to him as they looked upon his sad life. So he's from a nothing town, he has trouble walking, and he has this rather untoward nickname also. Back to our verse. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David. And so now the meeting is happening, folks. And Mephibosheth fell on his face and paid homage. Just get the picture here. Even with the difficulty of moving his bad ankles and his feet so that he could bow low, Mephibosheth does it anyway, probably painfully, anything to show David that he is submissive here, anything to avoid a death sentence, anything to get out of this moment alive. And David said, what did he say? Mephibosheth. This is a beautiful moment. David simply utters the name that this young man was known by. Like the risen Jesus, simply uttered Mary's name right after the resurrection. John 20, 16. Mary. That's what David does here. He dignifies him with his name, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth answered, Behold, I am your servant. He probably said it nervously. Behold, I am your servant, as he's bowing low. And David said to him, Do not fear. Relax, Mephibosheth. At ease, Mephibosheth, for I will do what? I will show you chesed for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table, how often? Always. And I imagine Mephibosheth now looking up from his bowed down position, looking up at David with his jaw dropping, with a look of sheer shock and surprise in his eyes, Mephibosheth is simply stunned by this development. He thought David was going to kill him. But not only does David spare Mephibosheth's life, we need to see this, not only does he spare Mephibosheth's life, David heaps blessing upon him. Notice this. 
we need to see this. It's not that David simply decides here to let Mephibosheth live and then release him on his merry way. Go, Mephibosheth, you could live. It's not that. David goes way further and does what? He restores confiscated property. David comes on board as king. He confiscates property from the former family. David restores confiscated property to Mephibosheth. He gives Mephibosheth a windfall, doesn't he? A windfall of real estate. And David also tells this young, disabled man from nothing town, he tells him, you know, Mephibosheth, forget scrounging around now for grain staples and maybe the odd fish. Now, you're going to be enjoying the sumptuous delicacies that I have at my royal table. Friends, Mephibosheth expected to be executed, and what he received was great and abundant, overflowing grace. Or as Peterson puts it, and I love this, he says, what Mephibosheth didn't know when he was brought into David's court and could have never imagined in his wildest dreams, is that he was there to be loved. Verse 8, And Mephibosheth paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? just as David himself had once referred to himself as a dead dog in the ears of Saul. Now Saul's grandson refers to himself as a dead dog in the, uh, in the ears of David. And then we'll go through verse 9 through to the end of the chapter here. Then the king called Ziba. Ziba comes back now. Come on back, Ziba. Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson, to Mephibosheth. And you and your son, Ziba, and your servants, you shall till the land for him. You shall till the land for him because it's too much for Mephibosheth to do with his bad feet. And you, Ziba, shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons, big family, and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. He's not any longer in nothing town. He's in Jerusalem. For he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Now let's notice in the last half of this chapter of Scripture, that this motif of the king's table 
gets mentioned four times. Very significant. So in verse 7, David says to Mephibosheth, you shall eat at my table always. In verse 10, David says to Ziba, your master's grandson shall always eat at my table. In verse 11, the narrator of Samuel says that Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And then finally in verse 13, we have this, he, meaning Mephibosheth, ate always at the king's table. The royal table that David so graciously opens to Mephibosheth gets mentioned four times here in only seven verses. The writer of Samuel wants to make David's table of hesed, his table of hesed, something that we will remember. Why? Well, because at two points later on in the story of David's kingdom, God will repay David for his table has said that he had given to Mephibosheth. God will repay David with table chesed for David when David and his descendants were in dire straits of their own. God will pour table chesed on David's head and on his descendants' head as a sort of beautiful reaping of the chesed that David had sowed with Mephibosheth. Watch this, because I think it's really beautiful, and it shows us that our acts of hesed, our acts of loving kindness, steadfast love toward other people, our acts of kindness, even toward our enemies, do not go unnoticed in the divine economy. So first of all, we return, just for a moment, we go back to verses 4 and 5. Watch this. Where was Mephibosheth fetched from? He was fetched and he was brought to David from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. That, that information gets repeated twice in these two verses. Well, this person, Machir, son of Amiel from Lodabar, he will make a reappearance later on in the story of David at a very critical time. David would end up later in his life on the run from his son Absalom. Absalom was seeking to kill his father. And while David was on the run, nothing new for David, he'd been on the run from Saul already. When he was on the run from his son Absalom, he ended up at this place called Mahanaim. And there at Mahanaim, three guys supplied the fleeing David and his entourage with a banquet, with a table of hesed. Barley, flour, grain, beans, it's all listed in scripture, lentils, honey, curds, meat, and cheese. And one of those three guys was none other than Machir, son of Amuel, from Lodabar. His name appears, I think we just lost our PowerPoint. It's okay. His name appears in 2 Samuel 17, 27. Uh, it's almost as if, there it is, it's almost as if this Machir, who at one time had been caring for Mephibosheth, remember, 
They brought Mephibosheth out of this guy's house, at one time caring for Mephibosheth. It's almost as if he saw with his own eyes the hesed kindness of David that David had given toward Mephibosheth, and now Machir returned the favor to David, organizing this banquet in the wilderness for a fleeing David, helping David survive another day and get sustenance during his trial. So friends, we need to notice this. Hesed was returned for Hesed, right? Kindness was returned for kindness, and God was in it. And then the second instance, very interesting one, where God would return table Hesed to David, for David's table has said toward Mephibosheth, this happens right at the tail end of 2 Kings, right at the tail end of the story of ancient Israel in the Old Testament. David's descendant Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim who had been king in Judah, at this point long ago exiled into Babylon, imprisoned there in Babylon for 37 years, has a remarkable turn of events happen. Suddenly one day, God made the king of Babylon, got into the king of Babylon's mind and heart, and God made this king release Jehoiakim from prison, just like that. The king of Babylon, it says in scripture, spoke kindly with Hesed, spoke kindly to Jehoiakim, his former prisoner. He gave Jehoiakim a seat of prominence And the text says, listen to what it says, every day of his life, Jehoiakim then dined regularly at the king's table. Does that not sound an awful lot like 2 Samuel chapter 9? Jehoiakim, David's helpless descendant, dined regularly at the king's table just as helpless Mephibosheth had dined regularly at David's table. God repaid Hesed for Hesed, God gave David's descendant Jehoiakim sudden, unexpected banquet privileges at the enemy king's table, just as David had done for Mephibosheth so many years earlier. Friends, you and I are encouraged to engage acts of Hesed toward our neighbor, acts of kindness, acts of help, acts of love that will benefit our neighbor. None of those acts of hesed go unnoticed by our God. God will repay hesed for hesed, and if it doesn't happen and materialize in this lifetime, it surely will in the next. Well, I want to leave you here this morning with a vision of the greater David. Who's the greater David? Jesus Christ. Here's the fact, friend. The fact is that I am a Mephibosheth, and so are you. All of us have been born into this human family that is not unlike the family of Saul. Rebellious against the true king unwilling to embrace the kingdom of the true king. But the greater David sits on his throne and he muses, 
is there anyone in the fallen human race? Are there any of my enemies that I may show them the chesed of my Father? Is there anyone unlovely that I may shower him or her with my chesed kindness? Are there any of those who by their sin strung me up on the cross that I may bless them and give them eternal life? The greater David summons us to appear before him. And because we have been lamed and crippled by the fall of our species into sin, because we are hobbled by our own sin, we may indeed be terrified of the summons, terrified to come before him. All we deserve from him for our rebellion is death. The wages of sin is death. But what we find, friends, when we go to this king is that he calls us by name, Brent, Robert, Gina, April, Peter, Reg. He calls us by name, and he lavishes upon us nothing but grace upon chesed grace, grace upon grace, amen? The king brings us into his house and he makes us part of his family and he sets a bountiful table before us. You shall never hunger and you shall never thirst as a subject of this king. And he also promises us, doesn't he, to give us our forfeited land back. The meek shall inherit what? The earth The new earth that is coming, friends, it will be ours as believers. While we were yet Mephibosheths, lamed and crippled from the fall of Adam, weak and ungodly, and according to Romans 5, enemies of the king, he died for us. Amen? Hallelujah. He substituted himself on the cross to take the punishment that we deserve for our sin. And greater love has no one than this. Take this into your week. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. My friends, friends of Jesus, the last thing that we deserve as rebels against the king is to eat at his table. And yet, he prepares a table in the presence of his enemies, and he now calls us friends and sons and daughters. So here's the application. Because of this colossal grace, and I do mean colossal, this colossal grace, I hope you see the grace that you have received as colossal, because of this grace that God has showered upon you, my Mephibosheth friend, Would you go out this day, this week, and perform that act of chesed that you have been hesitating on toward your neighbor, toward your enemy, 
Go out this week and make that attempt at reconciliation that you have been putting on the back burner. Go today and drop off that box of food for the needy person that you know and and leave a note on it that says, from the king of kings, and then drive away. Let the hesed kindness of your king flow through you this week. Let it go out into a starving world and do it in thanksgiving for the grace that you have received. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, in sending your son to die for us and to rise to inhabit us by your Holy Spirit. It's not just grace, it's grace upon grace. We have received such a lavish, abundant amount of grace for our lives. Your grace is always sufficient for us, and we are so thankful. Make us, Lord, people that put hands and feet on your hesed kindness to go out this day, this week, and perform hesed, Phone somebody, do something for somebody, listen to somebody who's suffering, whatever form it takes, Lord. May you make us very conscious of this and may we we be doers of your word and not hearers only. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.